Hi everyone, this is John and TJ. Welcome to Season 3 of ALN Math Talk. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of math. Please help us spread our all learners mission of cultivating a community of educators that promote math equity and inclusion for all students. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your fellow teachers. We hope you can check out our website, alllearnersnetwork.com, where we have some free resources and amazing math professional development opportunities under the events tab. We are recording this in September of 2022, and our fall events are live on our website through December. Today, we are joined by Katie Novak and our own Ashley Marlowe. Katie is an internationally renowned consultant, an author, adjunct professor at UPenn, and a former assistant superintendent of schools in Massachusetts. Welcome, Katie. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you. <laughs> Tell us a little about your background and your math journey. How would you end up where you are now? So I was a daughter. I am a daughter of two teachers. They're both retired. But I fought that narrative and was didn't think I was going to be a teacher, but I guess it's in the genes. So the only job I have ever had was teaching, and I was in the classroom for 13 years as an ELA teacher, and then I went to become a district coordinator for Title I and reading and assistant superintendent. But while I was a teacher, I had this amazing opportunity to work with colleagues to learn about a framework called Universal Design for Learning, which was really thinking differently about why students may not have access to the instruction that they need to be really successful. And it really changes the lens away from the student to the design of the actual lesson. And recognizing that all students can work towards incredibly rigorous standards if we get the conditions right in the design of instruction, the instructional materials, and those assessments. And before that, I thought that I was a really good teacher. I had great relationships with kids. My kids did pretty well. And it was so fascinating to me how comfortable I got in one size fits all design, really expecting learners to kind of mold themselves to the way that I was teaching, as opposed to changing the design of my lessons to better meet their needs. And so I started my consulting journey really speaking about my own unlearning as a teacher that what I felt was kind of the best first instruction would have been the best first instruction for me as a learner, but didn't represent the experiences of the amazing kids that I served. So now I really look to work with educators in all content areas and help them to recognize that if students aren't making really adequate accelerated progress, there is something wrong with the design there is nothing wrong with these beautiful kids that we serve. And for my own journey, you know, I never thought of myself as being a, a good student or somebody who is smart or capable. I was always tracked low in high school because I guess I didn't show up early enough that I was capable of more. And I know that I could have been amazing at mathematics, just as anyone can, but I didn't have the opportunities to access advanced mathematics ever simply because the one way that was designed didn't work really well for me. So I love connecting with all of you. I firmly believe all kids can absolutely achieve the highest levels of literacy, and I believe the same about math. 
Welcome, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, at All Learners, we talk a lot about all means all. And when we talk about teaching math for all learners or just teaching for all learners, kind of what, what would be your elevator pitch around that? What does that mean to you? Well, one of the things I talk about a lot is just how do we provide students with equitable opportunities to learn at grade level? And people automatically jump to equitable opportunities somehow equates to equitable outcomes. And so, you know, all of us right now, there's four of us here on this podcast and millions listening, I am sure. And all of us really, you know, do have opportunities to become like healthy and fit and we can all work towards those goals. And so, you know, imagine for a moment that we have access to an incredibly gifted track and field coach. And we all have opportunities to be a part of the same practices. And that coach shares workouts, like here are the sprint workouts and here are the distance workouts. And all of you have access to the best that the weight room has to offer. And all of you have access to the best trainers. And even when all of us receive the same amazing support, whether it's differentiated or not, we're not all going to run a four minute mile. But that doesn't mean that we do not deserve access to that program and those opportunities. And I feel like we're really backwards in education that we start by presuming incompetence and then we eliminate opportunities as opposed to recognizing that we can all work towards the same goals. And if we have the same opportunities, there will be some people who perform higher than others, but we should not be able to predict who those people are based on their identity and right now that we can. And so that's really what's problematic with our systems. I want to chime in here because I obviously could not wait for Katie to come join us on this podcast. And I remember um, one thing you said, Katie, in one of the first times I listened to you talk about UDL, um, you shared a story and you used this example of a student who was removed from the classroom learning environment during the main lesson. And you, you said something about what are the opportunities that that student is missing out on? But even more importantly, what is the opportunity that every other child is missing out on by that student not being in the room? And that just, that was like a punch in the gut for me. That was so exactly aligned with the work that we're doing and what I think is so important because I think, I think in education we talk a lot, we're starting to talk more about including all students in the classroom for their benefit. But I think we also need to be celebrating the benefit for every child for working with all different types of human beings and the kind of world we can create if, if from when our students are in kindergarten, preschool, we are seeing all of the diverse human beings that exist in our planet. And I just think that, um, I think that that message was so important because when we're talking about all means all, we're talking about inclusion and we're talking about experiences for students where we get to interact with lots of different people and knowing that all of us have strengths and what a different society we could create if that was the message kids were receiving from when they were babies. Yeah, uh, you know, 30 years ago, there was a trend for a minute of multi-age instruction to try to break down the barriers of what a kid was supposed to do. And one of the writers in that uh, was a woman named Barbara Pavan from Temple University. And she visited a school in Philadelphia, a high school that was heavily tracked, right? So they had five levels. And what they told her about the levels was the, the top level was bound for competitive universities and the bottom level, something about keep them from drooling. 
Um, so the yeah, so the bottom level um, had had three or four teachers in the first five months of the year, and so actually middle school, not a high school. Um, so they didn't have a teacher anymore. So for about a week, they had to be split up among all the other uh, groups. And so Barbara thought it would be interesting to talk to these kids about their experience being in, you know, mixed homogeneous groups. And, um, you know, what the administrators at the school thought was, well, it was, a, it was wasted time. The kids probably were overwhelmed. But what they all had to say, including the group that was in the highest um, track was how interesting it was to be doing this other stuff. Essentially that what other kids was, were doing was way more interesting than the kinds of mundane uh, procedural practical stuff they had been working on for the last two years. That reminds me a lot of like Jean Anion's study on the hidden curriculum that the design of the curriculum tell students a lot more about what we think they can accomplish than we might realize and where we're expecting them to go. And just being a part of a, a school district where I was not in honors classes, I was not in AP classes, I never took one in my life. I applied to a state school and got waitlisted for goodness sake. And I just simply didn't have the opportunities that my classmates had of which I was incredibly capable of accessing but we end up creating these tracks really early and then you're kind of like stuck. And the thing that just makes me so angry is I could have done the work. <laughs> like what, who got to decide that I wasn't capable? Some adult made a decision that prevented me from getting what was rightfully mine, but it also prevented class rights from, you know, from, from me building relationships with classmates and things like that. And what is so blasphemous to me is that adults get to make decisions for kids that impact their entire lives. And no one has the power nor the privilege to do that. And so when I think about students who might not have been historically really successful in any subject area, but specifically we're talking about math, is we have to change the narrative of it is much less dangerous to believe the kid is gonna be successful than the deficit-based mindset of can't, 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 can't. Because as soon as I say can't, I am free as a teacher because that means I don't have to do anything. It's impossible. So why should I look for different instructional materials? Why should I think about different pathways? Why should I design assessments differently? Because this is just impossible. The kid can't. And changing our language of I haven't seen the student be successful yet, so I need more support as an educator in designing something that allows that student to have opportunities to work at really high levels. And if I do that well, I believe kids are going to be successful. And then students feel like they belong where they are. And that is often missing. If I had a dollar for every time someone tells me that kids can't do something or teachers can't do something or schools can't do something, I would be like a bazillionaire. Well, and, and continuing on that track, on, on in our realm of experience, we're talking a lot about the, the equity issue around our top 10 highest paying jobs are in the STEM fields. And so when we look at it that way and we look at preparing students for college and career readiness and we're looking at our highest paying jobs being math related, if we are not supporting students in, in achieving or accessing 
the rigorous content that would support them getting into that field, we're actually creating an environment where we're missing human beings who could benefit that creative, you know, those creative job opportunities. We're excluding people from starting in third, fourth, and fifth grade from ever even having the opportunity to show what they could contribute to those fields because of that type of tracking. Yeah, I think at, at the current moment anyway, it's even it's even bigger than that in the sense that even if you don't go into a STEM field, your income, your the high school graduation rate, the matriculation rate is all going to be higher if you get through advanced math or algebra two. Um, algebra one is a gateway also. So I know there are folks trying to change that and I wholeheartedly support this notion that statistics, for example, is just as important as algebra and calculus mathematically and maybe pragmatically. It's not for colleges right now, though. Katie, your uh, website is novakeducation.com. That's N-O-V-A-K education.com, just so for our listeners so you know how to spell it. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us some of the services and resources you provide and how, how do you actually get those to teachers and to schools? So one of the ways that I started consulting was very focused on lesson design. So let's look at a lesson, let's identify the potential barriers of that lesson, and let's think about how we minimize those barriers through design. So I'm gonna give everyone here an analogy which will make more sense, and then I'll talk about how, in my own work, I've kind of like zoomed back from that. So when we're thinking about a particular lesson, think about just for a moment having like a dinner party, and you have 32 guests coming, and you just aren't exactly sure what their profiles are. So, you know, like you're starting your first day of school lesson, and you're making this meal for your first dinner party, and you are amazing at making lasagna, so that is what you make. Right, and we're talking meat, we're talking cheese, we're talking gluten, right? And you're doing that lasagna and like a nice bottle of red wine. And so, you know, I usually start by asking people to look at their lessons and say, who would this exclude? And so if I look at the lasagna and red wine, I'll put it all to you, right? So TJ, who is somebody who will not be able to access a delicious dinner if all I put in front of them is lasagna and red wine? Well, my, one of my best friends is vegan, so he, he's right off the bat with the cheese and the meat. He won't be able to eat that. Okay, right. So then I say, wait a second. What My goal actually isn't lasagna. It's actually a lovely meal. So why am I putting together this lasagna? Why don't I like put some pasta on the side, and then I can have like the marinara and whatever. And oh, we could everybody could kind of make their own little like ramekin. And we could have veg, we could have meat. Right? And so I start saying, who is excluded and what is another pathway that would lead to that goal? And so, you know, we know many people don't drink. And so I can say, oh, would you rather have a glass of wine or would you rather have like a water or do you want a BYOB? And with just a couple of small design adjustments, we could have 30 people who enjoy dinner and they feel like they belong there. Because TJ, your friend shows up and Who's this Novak character? I left starving. And if he leaves starving enough, I'm going to say, he can't eat. He can't eat. I'm not inviting him anymore. He's out. Put him somewhere else. Send him with the vegans. And it's like, it's a ridiculous analogy. But in classrooms, we sometimes do this. So I used to work with districts quite a bit by kind of zooming into the classroom. And then what I realized is some people would start saying things like, but I don't have ramekin dishes or no one ever gave me marinara, or 
you know, the, old, the, the district is forcing me to serve this red wine. So then I started zooming out by talking about the systems that are necessary for teachers to be able to do this really well. And so a lot of the work I do now is with developing multi-tiered systems of support and getting districts to really think about what are the drivers of successful systems because we have to have this mindset that all teachers are capable of teaching all students and we have to begin to really challenge the narrative that you know some teachers aren't going to be able to do this just like students all teachers absolutely can do this when we provide them with the necessary support when we challenge deficit-based mindsets and this requires access to really high quality instructional materials that are aligned to grade level expectations really good sources of screening and progress monitoring tools so that we know what's working quickly so we can continue to move in that direction. But also, it is such a gift to know what is not working so that you can adjust quickly. And then it's also about professional development and scheduling and how teachers work together. And so what we offer at Novak Education is we start with teachers where we do offer some graduate courses and some training for teachers who are working individually. But a lot of the work that I do is zooming back of how do we support teachers so that they can support the students who they're serving. And that often means helping teachers to better understand instructional standards, success criteria, and being committed to the ongoing journey of having to learn more and more about pedagogy if we want a diverse student body to be able to have equitable opportunities to succeed. I don't want, I don't want to be a question hog, but I have one follow-up question to that because I'm really interested in your thoughts. So I, I was a special educator years ago. I remember RTI, I remember people saying, oh, RTI is going to like fix everything. It, it never came while I was in schools. And then now we have MTSS, um, which I think leads to some misconceptions because when we talk about tiers, you can actually still separate kids. For me, it's all about a multi-layered system. Like you, you don't get rid of that first layer, you layer on additional supports and it's all about the educational response. So I'm just wondering if you could respond to that. Like, why, why don't we call it MLSS? Well, I always, when I present about MTSS, I actually will take the MTSS acronym and break it apart. So I talk about the multi-tiers, and then I also talk about the system of support. And so the multi-tiers are assuming that all students have access to tier one. That is not negotiable. And so the analogy, as you can tell, I really love a good analogy here is you know every single one of us deserves to go to the dentist and that dentist is going to take x-rays that's a really reliable universal screening tool and then the dentist says oh my gosh katie has all these holes in her teeth i need to fill cavities a cavity is a tier two intervention done by the dentist in the dental office so a tier two doesn't mean a different person it doesn't mean a different location sometimes it might depending on the data so my teeth uh, we're all out of alignment. I have these like amazing, like almost like uh, vampire fangs that came straight out in middle school. And the dentist was like, whoop, this is not my area of expertise. I'll fill her cavities, but she also needs an orthodontist. So tier two can be someone else. So let's say I am a general education math teacher. I need to be able to design instruction that works for all students. And this includes in the dental analogy, you know, people who come in with cleft palates or braces or need extractions. And then when data suggests that students need something else, something additional, sometimes I'm qualified to provide that. And sometimes it might be someone else, like a special educator or a math interventionist or an adjustment counselor. 
And the key is to supplement, not supplant. So when we're talking about the MT part, we're talking about that some students will need additional services. So at one point in my life, I was going to the dentist, getting cavities filled, had braces, also at that time ended up having a root canal. So now I'm going to like an endodontist and an orthodontist and a dentist. But can you imagine how outrageous it would be that as soon as you need braces, you're like, oh, sweetie, you don't get to go to the dentist anymore. And then five years later, you cannot be shocked that your teeth have decayed or that you need like all of these extractions. So that's the MT part. So it's not that you switch tiers, it's that you add on tiers. And so that's just an unpacking of multiple means some kids need more and not instead of. Now the FS part is what has to change in a system for that to be effective. And that's when we get into looking at scheduling, looking at curriculum adoption, looking at how we run our professional learning communities and our database decision making and how do we really build a shared responsibility for students with families and the community. And so the SS part is how do we have to improve our systems so that all students have access to tier one, which right now they do not. And when they do, they also have access to the additional supports. But there is this incredible misconception that like tier one somehow equates general education, of which I must remind everyone, all kids are general education students. Some of them receive special education support services, just as my child does. And so when we say all students deserve access to tier one, that is every single learner. And then we have to have really good sources of reliable, objective, valid data so we can determine which students are gonna need more than this, but we have to move away from the belief that tier two means it's somebody else or it's another place. Because using a blended learning model, I could certainly do a station rotation in my own classroom and have these you know, tier two intervention services within my tier one classroom. And also, special education is not a tier three service. It is a tier one service of which students receive specially designed instruction so they can access the general curriculum. So, okay, so yes. <laughs> um, we're all like out of applauding on mute. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is a question that comes up a lot in math. Yes, there is a need for special education to create access to um, tier one instruction. And in math particularly, we get the question from both interventionists and special educators. So I've got a sixth grade kid. They don't really know multiplicative reasonings. They can't deal with fractions. Um, so there also has to be some time in there for um, addressing the things that a student doesn't quite understand yet in addition to providing uh, grade level, access to grade level mathematics? Or do you feel differently about that? No, I absolutely agree. And that's often a systems issue because it's sometimes a scheduling barrier where the only time that the math interventionist gets with the student is by pulling them right. potentially out of tier one or by playing this like, devil's dilemma game where it's like, do I pull them from music? Do I pull them from social studies? And so a lot of the times the schedule has to change. Some districts are looking at moving towards co-teaching, but I, you know, again, my public service announcement, 
is it's only co-teaching if you co-plan, co-teach, and co-assess. And I see a lot of districts who will use what is more closely related to like a systemic integration where they'll throw the special educator into a room and there's no co-planning and there's no thoughtfulness to using these different approaches like alternative teaching or parallel teaching or station rotation. And you're not going to get a really high yield on that investment unless you have that schedule where we can plan together and say, during this component of the lesson, while we're working, you know, students through a workshop, like this is when you can provide those additional services. And so the English version, because I was an English teacher, is as a seventh grade teacher, there is this kind of norm, which is an ableist norm, but there is this belief that students are all foundational readers by fifth grade. There are actually no standards for foundational reading after fourth grade. So when you're looking at any state standards, you, from kindergarten to fourth grade, you'll have reading comprehension for literature, reading comprehension for informative text, and foundational reading. Once you get to fifth grade, foundational reading is gone which means that it is not grade level appropriate in a tier one classroom to teach foundational reading. Yep. Now, in seventh grade, in 10th grade, in 12th grade, I had students who were not yet decoding at a fourth grade level, which makes them functionally illiterate by definition. But I can still make grade level text accessible to them by you know, pulling out visuals and doing reader's theater and providing audible or translation and reading chunks of text. And, I can ensure that all students are working towards comprehension of literature and informative text. Someone has to teach the child to decode. <laughs> and it's not me in tier one, but do we have a reading specialist? Do we have a language-based you know, reading? And my own daughter in sixth grade, you know, received the Wilson reading, which is like a really, really um, intensive reading program. But the school has a schedule where there's a block called WIN block, which stands for what I need. So she is in a co-taught ELA and math class. And then in addition, without missing anything, she gets Wilson reading every day. And that's really how you accelerate learning. So I would say the same is absolutely true. But what you're starting to realize is do we have the staff for that? Do we have a schedule for that? Do we have the curriculum for that? And do we have the time for the consult to make sure that it really is building upon that tier one instruction? I spent a year, a couple of years ago, as a math interventionist in a local elementary school. And it took a good part of the, uh, the fall to get them to, we, they all do a, a section of math menu. They all have this just right period where there's lots of things going on in the room after the main lesson. And um, I fought really hard to get my time with students to work on other things during that math menu time. I didn't suck up the whole time. I wanted part of it. Um, and it worked really well. And uh, in one of the pods, the special educators would arrive at that time and we'd work throughout. It was, uh, it was a really great model. And I was supervising some student teachers last year in the school and the new interventions, they had all gone right back to, um, well, I didn't want to pull them during reading time, but you know, that's the time I had to do it. That's when this- Heartbreaking. It, it kind of is, and there is, there is like you mentioned earlier, there is this sense of, well, we'd like to do it differently, but you know, it's kind of like uh, I, my own son was on an IEP in a district where I was working, and he had some speech and language issues. And at our meeting, at our IEP meeting, they said, well, 
you know, we have to give him his services during recess because there's not, yeah, there's not really any other time to do it. And I said, no. And they said, well, we don't have the people. I'm like, not his problem, not my problem. You're not going to pull him out for services during recess. Um, but I think there is a general feeling that somehow the system has handcuffed everybody and they can't do what actually needs to be done. When in fact, like you're saying, if you unpack it, usually you find there's a way. The system can change. The system can be designed differently. And of course there are challenges, but that is really why we have to think about what do we need in our system to better support our educators so that they can provide our students who we ultimately serve. I mean, school is for students, it's not for adults. But we have to make sure that the adults are prepared and have what they need to be able to serve students. So that makes me think about um, Katie and I recently um, wrote an article together for Edutopia. And we, um, you know, when I shimmied myself into her lunch table at her conference in Killington um, and <laughs> wanted to talk to her about this, and we had a conversation about, um, about math and how a lot of people um, you know, feel like there's one way to teach math or there's one pathway and that everybody, because that's how we were taught, right? Most of our experience in school learning mathematics was, here's how you subtract. Now everybody mimic me on your boards and show me that you can follow me really well. And so um, what you're saying, Katie, just makes me think more about um, what we were talking a bit about in the article, which is what are the what are the individual choices that a teacher can make that um, can support access to grade level content? So we had talked about context, supporting students and being able to understand the problem by read it, thinking about readability, thinking about choosing a context that's relatable to students. Um, but we also talked about at our learners network we have these high leverage concepts, right? And it's this idea of like what is the most important priority content that all students need? And I think. Sometimes people make the decision in their systems when a student needs priority content that is from a previous grade level, that that becomes prioritized over accessing grade level content. So when we're looking at a third grader who's learning multiplication in their main lesson and they still are working on their understanding of place value, and sometimes our systems are set up in a way that say, well, we're going to prioritize that place value. And then what we're not really thinking about or talking about within that system is by missing out on the multiplication, by the time they're in fifth grade, now we're going to have a place yeah, value issue and a multiplication issue. They're always behind. Not, I can't tell you the number, you know how you were saying you'd be a gazillionaire. The number of ninth graders who are still practicing their times tables because a special educator believes that they can't access any other math unless they can do their times tables it's a little heartbreaking because they've been getting them since third grade. So one would think if the drill and practice hasn't taken in six years that maybe something else could and should happen. I also, there's this amazing, amazing new invention called a calculator. That, <laughs> um, you might not have heard about it, but uh, sometimes I use it in my adult practice and I'm, I'm pretty successful, I have a doctorate and I use this brand new invention for lots of reasons. Sometimes I do it in an Excel spreadsheet, sometimes I do it on my phone, 
but you know, it, there is there is this thing, and so may, maybe we need to do more of a public service announcement <laughs> about that. There is this tool that you can give, which then will eliminate that barrier. I had a I had an argument on Facebook uh, years ago with teachers who were upset about the idea of students in math in high school using a calculator to do their high school level math. And I'm like, how about we're using their phone as a calculator? And I was like, how about we teach them how to use that as a tool appropriately versus like going on the internet during a test or whatever. Um, and Joe Bowler actually chimed in and she's like, I do agree with TJ Jemison. Uh, so oh my gosh, that's like bucket loops right there. Oh, I know. <laughs> you wanted to squeeze that into the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> what is so interesting about it, too, is like I do some very high-level statistics because I work with researchers and things on UDL. And, you know, I do have really good number sense when it comes to multiplication. It's more efficient to use the calculator. So, like, the other thing is, is well, again, one of the things I always say, because I start getting snarly, is it's like, well, you know, I don't want people to use that. And so if you think of, um, you know, like let's say Target as like a, like the, the store, Target, right? I live really close to a Target and therefore delivery was not meant for me. It was not meant for people who live right near a Target, right? So let's just use the UDL lens here for a second. Is Target wants everyone to shop at Target. They say, gosh, who would be excluding? You know, who would we be excluding? Well, a lot of people don't live near Target. Let's make sure that we can deliver something. And there are so many people who will get delivery from a place of which they are fully capable of going. And it's like, well, why do you do that? And it's well, it's just so much more efficient. And the goal is just for me to get the, you know, whatever it happens to be, the books. And so I could just do it that way. And whenever I say that to teachers, I'm like, how is that any different? Like, you know, I don't say, oh my gosh, that's easier. I can't believe you're using that. It's let's take advantage of the tools that technology has provided us so that we can do things more efficiently. Well, it's also, so when, when teachers teach the standard algorithm, I know you're not a math person, but you know what that is? Yeah. So when teachers teach the standard algorithm, it's essentially a, a procedure without understanding most of the time. Occasionally kids know what they're doing, but usually they're following a series of steps because someone's told them this is an efficient and accurate way to get it. When you pick up a calculator and plug the numbers in, you're following a series of steps to get an answer that, and you don't know the voodoo that goes on in that calculator, except that you know the algorithms in there. So even 30 years ago when I was, when NCTM came out with, we should be using calculators, and I would say to groups of teachers, we should be using calculators. They would say, well, what if we don't, what if you don't have a calculator, which of course now is an absurd thing. But in those days I would say, well, do you keep an outhouse in your backyard, you know, yeah. in case you don't, a horse, do you have a horse in the garage? Cause, right? Um, yeah, it's, but the movement, what we would say is when the calculations are accessible, we want them to do, do them in your head. And so we place, place a lot of emphasis on number sense through mental, mathematics, or if it's really hairy, use a spreadsheet or a calculator, which is what real people do. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing, too, is like what you're saying, John, that makes me just like, it's, I'm so affirmed in like my own, my own thoughts right now, is just that like when we think about this, just this concept of like, yes, number sets is important, just like learning to read is important. Like I would never push back on that. But we are talking about the fact that 
Some students just don't have it yet. And so at that point, unless I have a magic wand that makes a kid a foundational reader who's not yet, or who makes a kid have like really great number sense for multiplication who doesn't, I have a choice. I can include them or I can exclude them. And that's what it comes down to, is that yes, coulda, shoulda, woulda, like kids should read in sixth grade and kids should know their math, you know, multiplication facts in ninth grade. But the reality is, is that they don't yet. You know, I would also say that we should all have really good vision. Like biologically, it's weird <laughs> that so many of us can't see that well, um, myself included. If I don't have corrective lenses in, I cannot see. Like my license has a warning, like make sure this lady has corrective lenses. So, you know, yes, I should be able to see. Like humans should have evolved to have like vision that's, that's sight. Um, but the reality is that I don't. So you can give me the damn contact so I can see or you can wish or like try to train my eyes. And like, if that's what I think of when I think of these like kind of remediation of skills, it's like, okay, we can keep working on these vision exercises, but give her the damn glasses in the meantime, because otherwise she's excluded from so much. Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of work, Glenn Patterson particularly at ALN with kids with really complex needs. And universally they're sort of trained, not really allowed to learn. And it's all about time and money, which becomes more and more anachronistic all the time. But when we actually do real mathematics instruction, it requires some thought sometimes. It requires some thought every time. Um, not only do the kids learn more math, it, we had an example a couple years ago where a kid gained three or four years worth of math in five months because they were actually getting math instruction. But it improves cognitive ability, right? Because they're actually, you know, they're not lifting styrofoam anymore. They're actually lifting some mental weights and like getting some muscles behind them. So this, we kind of kill kids with kindness by like, well, we don't want you to struggle at all. But there is no learning without some struggle, yeah? And so to be kind is actually to take away opportunity. And, and I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier, those kids who are basically in closets in schools learning how to tell time and count money endlessly, the kids who are in the classroom where that child should be are missing out on experiences yeah. with that child. Yeah. And so it's a two-way relationship here that we are talking about. We're not just talking about including all children in the lesson, but making sure that all kids are experiencing diverse perspectives in their classrooms by everybody being welcomed in there and feeling like they belong. Katie and Ashley, what are some of those strategies you talked about in that Edutopia article on increasing accessibility for math? And just by the way, I'll link both Katie, your website and this Edutopia article um, by our podcast so our listeners don't have to go searching for that. Ashley, go first. Okay, so we start, I mentioned earlier, we started by talking about the high leverage concepts and that it's really important that teachers are considering in their main lesson, what are the scaffolds that are necessary around math content for a student to access their grade level content. So for example, if you're a fifth grader and you're learning how to multiply fractions and you're still working on multiplicative reasoning with whole numbers, what are some of the tools that a teacher can provide for a student so that they can access the fractional reasoning, right? So like we talked about, we've talked, you could consider calculators. Um, are there some models that you could provide for students? Are there ways that you could provide 
access to the problem by making it a low floor high ceiling task where students are starting working with whole numbers and then moving into fractions. But what we're, we're really, we were really talking about as around that article is that's unique in mathematics at least is you have to have the mathematical content knowledge and considerations when you are considering your scaffolds. So we talked about um, you know ways to support readability and, and Katie can talk a little bit more about that but I think unique to mathematics is the content understanding that we want students when they are in fifth grade to be developing fractional reasoning while they're also being supported in their whole number reasoning right with multiplication and addition that is students should not be excluded from learning about fractions because they don't have the whole number of concepts yet um, and we talked a lot about like the three different types of scaffold and I always found that this was really helpful in thinking about design of you know generally you can uh, kind of separate the different scaffolds into these linguistic scaffolds, these conceptual scaffolds, and then these more socio-cultural scaffolds. So, you know, your linguistic scaffolds are thing like, things like, if it's a barrier for me to like read, you know, kind of like the math scenario or the math story or the math problem, then, you know, allowing me to listen to that or really taking the time to unpack the language of like what it's asking, having visual representations of some of the words and concepts. You know, some of these, you know, math has become really language-based, which is like wonderful, but also you can exclude students based on like really heavy levels of language because I don't even know what is, I'm so like absolutely pivoting because I'm trying to figure out what something means, uh, like in the planetarium and it's like, ah, what's a planetarium and now I'm lost, right? So we can like think about the linguistic loads of that language. And even one of the things that drives me nuts is we often ask students to like share their reasoning for solving a problem or we want them to explain how they solved a problem, provide sentence stems, give them a <coughs> word mode, because like those things should not uh, exclude a, a student from being able to share what they know. And sometimes again, in this kindness, we start pulling down the grade level um, vocabulary. So we get something like, well, I put this number with this number and got this. And it's like, no, 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 let's talk to students about like, you know, got this is not language that we're going to use mathematically. Um, the second is conceptual scaffolds, and that's things like done problems, um, providing the math formulas, you know, breaking up the problem into steps. And so really just thinking about how can we kind of scaffold the concept. And then the sociocultural goodness gracious, allow students to work together in small groups, you know, give them the opportunities to learn about math socially. And this can be an incredible opportunity for any and all learners. So when I was an assistant superintendent, the math department would often put a problem on the board and would like pair students up with diverse partners. It was always different partners. And one partner was the person who wrote down and the other partner was the partner that spoke and they switched every 30 seconds. So as the writer, I can only write down what you say. And as the like speaker, so you're going through your notes being like, okay, so uh, top number, top number, top number. Okay, hold on. Let me go to that done problem yesterday. Okay, right, 204 at the top. Okay, okay, 30 seconds, crap. And then you like move over. And it is the students used to love that activity because regardless of who you were paired with, you could use any and all resources, but the socio-cultural scaffold of working together, of being able to use the conceptual scaffolds, the notes, the books, looking at what the teacher provided for the word bank and the sentence stem, every group 
could really, really get close to solving this challenge problem at the beginning. And then that would be how a lot of teachers would start their lesson. And I always thought that was such a great tool of like, here's everything you might need. Now work together and try to figure it out. There's no grade. There's no high stakes. It's like just about learning for the sake of learning. Math for the sake of communication and problem solving. Yeah, we, we leverage uh, student discourse and ways that students work together to construct strategies to solve problems. It's sort of an int integrated and intimate part of, of what we see as good teaching. And ultimately, I think, I, I don't know if you'll, you would agree with this, but our perspective is it's only the teaching skill that matters. The curriculum can be helpful or it can be hindrance, but in the end, it's not the curriculum, it's not the technology, it's not the kids, it's the skill of the teacher to bring that out. One thing, Katie, that I know that your organization has been working on um, or has been sharing some resources around and something that we've been thinking a lot about at All Learners is that idea of culturally sustaining curriculum as well. And we didn't really get into that into, in our article, but um, when we're talking about equity and access for all students, we have to be thinking about the materials that we're putting in front of students and whether it's actually representative of the students that are in the room based on their interests, based on their belief system based on their life experiences. And um, we've talked a lot about how, you know, um, in math textbooks or the problems that we put in front of students, we have to be really thinking about, like, if you're a person who lives in Vermont and you experience snow, a word problem that is about sledding is going to make a lot of sense. But if I'm a kid who lives in Arizona and I've never even seen snow, I automatically have this barrier to being able to access the problem before we've even gotten into the mathematics. So we didn't get to talk as much about that in our article, but I think it's something important that um, as people who are thinking about how we make sure all students feel like they belong in the classroom, feel like they're represented, they have those mirror windows and mirror experiences where they're seeing into other people's perspectives and they're seeing themselves represented, we have to think about the context of the materials we're providing. So Katie, your, um, your mission on your website uh, references equity, especially for those uh, folks from traditionally resilient communities, my words, not yours, uh, and, and then you refer to doing all those things that you want to, to, uh, to assist those communities with measurable impact, flair, and style, which I love, by the way. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, what does that mean? What does impact, flair, and style kind of look like? from Katie Novak. I mean, flair and style seems to be pretty obvious right now. Uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, we, we try to practice what we preach as much as possible. So really thinking about how do we model really effective practices? How do we create professional development that provides flexible pathways for educators to get what they need? You know, while really trying to uh, celebrate instructor presence, as we say, is, you know, we want our, our instructors and our consultants to be unapologetically who they are and to, you know, have their kind of unique style and flair to every presentation that in no way, shape or form are we trying to kind of institutionalize or, um, you know, make a generic version of what UDL is, is we know that every educator has these amazing, amazing strengths and styles and no way do we want to um, negotiate that in any way. So one of the things that we always say is that every single 
every single student should be able to walk into a classroom and have the teacher look at them and say, you get to be exactly who you are and you'll be successful with me. And, you know, allowing people to be who they are in all of their beauty and with all of their, you know, uh, you know amazing, uh, not only strengths, but challenges is, is really what we try to embrace. So that is the first part. The impact part, this is like my latest obsession, is trying to get districts to be more transparent about outcomes instead of outputs. So when we talk about improving school districts, every single thing should eventually boil down to student increases in learning, specifically by identity group, and students feeling of belonging. So like the how often are students included, but also how do they feel about being included. And what I see a lot of on district strategies is like, we are going to improve this district by having a new schedule. And look, here's our new schedule, and that's the output, and we're gonna adopt a new curriculum. And look, here's the ed reports for this new curriculum, look what we did, and I'm like, goodness gracious! What is the impact on the students who have been excluded and oppressed and marginalized and minoritized for like thousands of years? Every single change we need to make in a district has to come back to that. So when we work with districts, we really try to get them to identify what are the outcome measures so that you can measure the impact of these changes on the students you serve and you have to triangulate it because goodness gracious, stop showing me only like the state standardized data because we know that many of those tests are ableist and exclusionary. And so, yes, it's important to make growth, but it's also important to show growth on in district assessments and much more authentic assessments when you're talking about math tasks, for example. We wanna make sure that parents feel as though their students are making growth. We wanna make sure students feel like they belong. And so when we work with districts, that's our current biggest challenge. I've given a couple of presentations in the past week on the difference between outcome data and output data. And one of the things that came up, which is heartbreaking, is like, yeah, but like teachers are really uncomfortable about talking about outcome data. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to change that narrative <laughs> because if we're uncomfortable with facing the fact that we are not able to make an impact in the lives of children, this is not the right place to be. And instead, how do we really celebrate growth as opposed to just the end achievement on these standardized tests? And how do we help to see that this work is making a difference? And I fail to see a focus on that in a lot of places. And so ultimately, that's what we're trying to do is to show impact. So as an example, we have worked with uh, the Washington Association of School Administrators in the state of Washington for the past three years. And Washington is coming, um, or three years ago, they had like this huge, huge um, initiative called the Inclusive, Pre uh, Pre uh, Inclusive Practices Project because they had one of the lowest inclusion rates in the country for students who have disabilities. And they were in the 40% of, of inclusion given a national rate that's closer to 60%. And so within three years of the project, the districts who have worked with us in the project have grown their inclusion rates 10%, given the state that has grown less than 5%. Inclusion is not everything, it's a seat in the room, but we also require districts who we work with to give us their universal screening data, student surveys, and teacher surveys on their efficacy. 
And then we can triangulate it to tell a story about the impact that the project is having on the district. So you're measuring student sense of belonging with an instrument? Yep, so there are, um, there are a number of different tools that are reliable and valid that will look at student perceptions of if they belong. Panorama is a company that does a lot of work by, you know, with that, and they have a lot of collections of survey instruments, and that's who we're using in uh, Washington. But, you know, asking students to say, you know, agree with statements like, you know, I, you know, I feel as though my teacher really understands my interests and that I belong in class. I feel like I have really close relationships with my classmates in this class. Um, I feel as though, you know, I can accomplish things in this class that I never thought were possible. Like, so it's questions like that. And there is a disconnect or a lack of consistency between teacher perception and student perception. So when we ask teachers, do you really understand the interests of all the students in your class? You have a very, very high level of strong agreement. And when we asked students, yeah, do yeah. your teachers understand your interests, we had a much, much lower level of agreement. Yeah, I've used those instruments around math attitudes, but what we found was it's very difficult to, um, to be able to document changes unless you're using pretty long periods of time. You, yeah, okay. We've been doing it for I mean we've been doing it for three years, so we get the annual data. Okay. And do you use are you using any qualitative methods or is it all through surveys? Right now it's all through um, well we do the only qualitative measure is that every single team is required to submit meeting minutes after all of our required trainings. And we are working with program evaluators who do a lot of that, but they do thematic coding of the meeting minutes, um, and they also do thematic coding of every session that we work with the administrative team, they have to fill out a survey where they answer questions about whether or not they still had questions. And so that's thematically coded. Um, but for the most part, it's it's pretty quantitative. Yeah, we could talk about this after. <laughs> I know. It's, well, and then also we were contacted by the American Institute of Research, and they're going to um, also support us with trying to measure the impact of the work. Yeah. The yeah, WWC and IES loves these kind of quasi-experimental random control trial studies. I have issues with that, but again, we can we can talk about that after. We we are all on board with the notion, though, that um, it's all about impact. In fact, I would say one of the things that's different about all learners is that we don't go into a district to do our thing. We go into a district to move the bar for everybody. And so we're always looking at that kind of uh, that kind of result. Um, Katie, any it, this has been a wonderful conversation, and we're going to have to do it again. Um, any last things you'd like to leave our listeners with before we sign off? No, I, th I think my last thing is just like this change is possible, and I think that it's scary and it's hard, and we don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet because many people haven't done it yet. But it's very clear that what we are doing isn't working. And so we need to lean into making these changes because we have to change the outcomes of kids, full stop. Well, we hope you've all enjoyed our conversation today with the amazing Katie Novak. Thanks again, Katie. Um, remember, you can find her online at novakeducation.com. That's N-O-V-A-K education.com. 
Remember, you can find a recording of our podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com or on Spotify or Anchor. Search ALN Math Talk, along with free resources like our high leverage concepts, high leverage assessments, high leverage progressions, high leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, all rights reserved. Executive producers John, I was just thinking Tapper, and TJ, the designer, Jemison. Spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert Fly in the Water, Micro Brew, Stats Loving Laird, who reminds us that we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Join us next time for more amazing math talks. Thank you so much, Katie, for joining us, and Ashley, too. Bye, everybody.